did you know that this programme is available for sponsorship support from as little as £10? For more information about how we can help your business, club or society, email communitykeyboards at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. FM and online at oldhamcommunityradio.com and featuring all that's best from the King of Instruments. This is Community Keyboards with Ian Wollstonehall. Welcome to this edition of Community Keyboards On Air and Online. Well, on this edition, a chance to catch up with what's been happening at the Musical Museum in London. And I'll be joined on the line by Chris Barber right after he opens the show with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire from the 1956 film High Society. Listeners will remember our visiting the Musical Museum in Kew Bridge down in London for the final of last year's Young Theatre Organist of the Year competition there. And I promised that we would return soon to learn more about the wonderful collection of uh, instruments and uh, memorabilia that are housed in the museum. Um, like most things, these these plans are often uh, taken out of our hands and sadly for the moment, obviously, coronavirus has put a halt to any sort of normal day-to-day life. But nonetheless, delighted to welcome to Community Keyboards the Chairman and Director of Music at the museum there, Chris Barber. Chris, thanks for joining me on the programme. Lovely to have you here as, a, as our guest this time. Ian, good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me to, to be with you and to be able to talk to your listeners on air with you today. I suppose before we chat about your life and times at Brentford, as we speak, um, what's the sort of latest state of play with getting back to some sort of normality with the museum? Because I'm, I'm guessing it's been hugely interrupted by this uh, virus. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the COVID um, has hit us incredibly hard. We've had to cancel all our normal events, so our t- typical monthly organ concerts, our tea dances, our tours, and in particular our Christmas concert program. And you know, normally we do 15, 16 concerts throughout November and December, and that's our biggest single income generator that we have. Um, however, we are planning, uh, subject to the um, regulations as they unfurl, yeah. to have some kind of reopening in early October okay. with a weekend of events to mark the occasion. Um, watch this space for kind of more details of that. It's still in the planning stage um, of who's going to be there and what we're going to do, but it will be a weekend of events. So we'll be doing something on Friday, Saturday, Saturday evening, and then a Sunday afternoon concert. And we will also be streaming our at least one of our Christmas concert this year in early December. So again, watch this, this space for details. And of course, we started doing some live streaming events of organ concerts, and we will be, we will be uh, continuing those. And the other thing that it's given us the opportunity to do while we've been had to be closed to the public is to start on a major facelift of the uh, downstairs galleries of the museum, which we're starting to look a little bit tired and dated. So although it has hit us hard, we have tried to make use of the time productively. Um, so hopefully when our visitors come back to see us, we'll be bigger, brighter and better than we were before. I think everybody affected by this has made uh, good use of their time wielding the paintbrush and the uh, the broom and things like that just to do a bit of spring cleaning, um, oh, not, uh, not necessarily in spring. <laughs> well, indeed, and our volunteers uh, and, and the paid staff have been 
working extremely hard. Yeah. And yeah. say people who, who've been to the museum before and come back to see us will notice a huge difference. You, you've been resident there, Chris, now, haven't you, for, well, a decade or so. And I know that um, listeners will primarily know you in that role via the recordings you've made at the um, the Wurlitzer there, the ex-Regal Kingston-upon-Thames. But the, the organ there is not your only musical preoccupation, I suppose, is it? So what's the sort of the split that Chris Barber takes whilst you're on the museum premises there? What's, what's the sort of typical makeup of your day there? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, obviously, as chairman, I have a lot to do with the over, overseeing the running of the museum. I have a great uh, team of people who actually do a lot of the, the spade work, as it were. Uh, so a big part of my job is is looking at the strategy of the museum, where we're going, what we need to be thinking about for the future, particularly around uh, developing new income streams and looking at new opportunities that we can um, use the space that from the museum uh, for. So it could be it's corporate hires or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then set against that, I, as, as in my musical role, I'm responsible for making sure that basically all the the instruments within the museum are hopefully in tune mm. and sound reasonably musical. Mm. And again, I have to leave that to a team of experts. I'm not a, a restoration expert by any means. And then the favourite, my personal favourite bit, of course, is um, being able to play the wonderful, wonderful <laughs> ex-Regal Kingston Wurlitz. I mean, it is such a joy and an honour to play that when you think of some of the marvellous organists who've sat Absolutely. there in the past yeah. and played at the likes of Sydney Torch, Robinson Cleaver, Harold Ramsey, Reginald Fort, and of course, the wonderful, wonderful Joseph Seal. You know, it, when you think you're following it in the footsteps of people like that, every sit down, every time you sit down to play the organ, you can't help but feel a little bit of magic and a little bit humbled. It is something that I certainly remember back when I first was at the museum and I'd be started doing some Sunday afternoon film presentations and trying to present the organ a little bit as it would have been back in the 30s mm. for a lot for a you know a film interlude yes. and that was the first time i played the organ um, in public as it were mm. for a performance like that and just being sitting there waiting to start <laughs> playing and the house lights going down and this moment of absolute magic mm. but also absolute terror as well oh, yes i can i can empathize there <laughs> uh, knowing that you know people waiting to hear something and hopefully something's a bit, a bit special yeah and you're thinking my God, Reginald Ford et al. Yeah. have done this. And, you know, I've got to try and live up to, to, to that. So it is, it's an amazing experience and one that I'm continually honoured to do. I remember, um, Chris, from the visit to the museum last year that the, the operation of the museum is very much a, a team effort. You've, you've mentioned that a moment or two ago. It's hard to believe that it was started, what, half a century ago by, by Frank Holland with his own modest collection and then expanded really beyond all recognition the present building was opened in 2008 i think if you had to describe the exhibits and in, 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 to be honest chris well my fleeting visit there last time didn't allow me to have a proper look at the museum but if you had to describe the exhibits and the vast amount of musical memorabilia that's housed there what sort of words would you choose to describe it to people well that's again, that's a great question, Ian. And one of the things I like to do is to look through our visitor book. Ah, right, yes. Because um, people are very kind and leave some, you know, their, their feedback. And also we get feedback on, through um, TripAdvisor. Mm. Uh, again, on, from people leaving us feedback on their experience at the museum. And just from memory, some of the words that come to mind are that have been used to describe people's experience and what they've thought of, of what they've seen in all, all the instruments we have housed there are eclectic, diverse, fascinating, mm -hmm. quaint, <laughs> and one that's often been used for the world, it's is jaw-dropping. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, yeah, and a couple yeah. of people I've spoken to, I said, that's interesting, why do you say that? I said, well, we've never seen one of these before or only heard them on the radio yeah. or whatever. And now to see it suddenly rise out of the ground in this blaze of colour and this amazing big sound is just unbelievable. And I think eclectic is very true as a descriptor. You know, we have arrangements for a whole variety of backgrounds and different time frames, which, um, you know, we go from the sort of middle of the 19th century up to the middle of the 20th century, with, particularly with our new uh, contemporary collection. It is very diverse. It is totally absorbing. People 
are really blown away by not only the mechanics of what some of these things do, but also the way that they sit, if you like, in history and and the context that they fit within Mm. in history. And it, it is truly amazing. And I think it's one of these things you have to see and experience through a tour to really get the full kind of musical museum experience. And one of the things that we're looking at um, developing for the future is some, some very specialist tours to uh, focusing on key areas of the museum, including something we call the Mighty Wurlitzer Experience. All right. And uh, more of that uh, perhaps later. Mm. But also looking at some of our other um, unusual and um, amazing, amazing exhibits. Right. And we will be featuring some of these as well on our um, streaming programs. Yes, I, I was going to mention that I, I've seen only very recently that uh, you've got uh, a, a video or two there showing some of the uh, these more unusual exhibits and some fascinating backstories with them as well, isn't there? I was oh, pa- absolutely particularly intrigued with the Steinway and the Stein, the Grotrian Steinweg. Yeah, yeah, it's um, um, amazing, amazing. Uh, we won't give anything away. We'll, we'll we'll let our listeners find find out about that tune in under their own absolutely. steam, as they say. Yeah, um, uh, visitors, of course. Not at the moment, it must be said, but usually when things are normal, <laughs> normal service, visitors are actively encouraged to um, to become sort of hands on with the exhibits. I mean, I'd be terrified if I was a curator. <laughs> I'd be a little bit scared. How, how worrying is that for you as somebody trying not to uh, damage the things? As it were? Well, <laughs> just just to kind of put that in context. Yeah. There are only very certain limited number of exhibits that we can let people get hands on with mm. at the moment. Mm. And it is an area that we feel we need as a museum to expand into where we can have more interactive exhibits. You know, some of the things, some of the exhibits are very delicate. Yes. They're irreplaceable. Of course. And so unfortunately, we just can't let uh, people have a go with that. However, mm. it is something that we realize that would be desirable and we are working on that and one of the things we have at the moment where people can have a go is a pianola so they can have a go at pedaling yes and get getting a feel for what it's what's that's like and it's it really is tremendous exercise for your um, lower legs mm. and ankles um you know once you've done that you can run like mo farah no problem <laughs> uh but it, it but it is also there's the technique to it as well to make it musical not just make it go as fast as you can or whatever <laughs> so Unfortunately, so we are a little bit limited at the moment about what we can and can't let people touch. Mm. Um, and we we do want to get to a point where we can have a more interactive exhibit so people can get a little bit more hands-on. Yes, but it's, at, it's a fine yeah, line, isn't it, between it's a fine l- letting people loose and, and, and ensuring that these things... You know these uh, these wonderful exhibits are are maintained and uh, and there for the future. For the future. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. What's um, I mean, just talking about the memorabilia and everything that you've got there, Chris. What what's the most unusual item in the collection? Am I going to put you on the spot by asking that? Well, you are because if you ask me this question, I would probably give a different answer to <laughs> some of the tour guides. And, right. and you know, not surprisingly, we all have our own particular favourites or things that we think are perhaps the most unusual, the most special. And and I know that one tour guide would have said some of the music boxes. But I think for me personally, particularly being in a kind of coming from a keyboard background, being starting off as a pianist and then organist, I think for me the most unusual item in, in our collection at the moment is the Mellotron, yeah. as used, of course, by Rick sure. Wakeman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I you know been lucky enough to 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 meet Rick Wakeman several occasions and I know he he got rather frustrated with the Mellotron that he had, and I think he tried to set fire to it. Uh, <laughs> the, the joys of being a rock musician. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can't imagine a theatre organist doing that, really, can no, you? No, I but, don't know. Uh, I've seen some near misses. <laughs> uh, quite probably. But I think that's a really a very interesting... Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an electromechanical in, instrument that was developed in Birmingham, I think, in England in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it uses the same concept as a modern sampler, but yes. it generates its sound using analog samples recorded on an audio tape rather than digital samples, you know, that we'd use, to say, for, you know, today for modern digital theatre organs. Mm. Mm. Um, so I find it a particularly fascinating example and the, the kind of, you know, the sounds it makes and where it's, again, where it's fitted in in musical history. So, you know, Rick Wakeman used it on uh, David Bowie's Space Odyssey. Yeah. And it's been used by Moody Blues and all sorts of people. So I think it has a really interesting place in our musical history. 
Uh, and as I say, being a keyboard player, I, I just personally find it fascinating. But as I say, you can ask you could ask some of the other guys and girls in the museum, and they would probably give you a different answer. So that's a very biased. Oh answer, well, there we go. Yeah, I think you've done well to uh, nail your colours to the mast, as we we might say. Let's have a, a short musical break, Chris, before we chat a little bit more about the Wurlitzer specifically. Let's sure. have a listen to it in its uh, original home uh, from 1937. This is a, I think, a Parlophone 78 recording of Harold Ramsey playing the Rodeo March. And actually, I've just sort of segued that into Richard Hills at the console from the recent live stream at the museum with his arrangement of the same. Although I do know that there's a little bit of argument whether it's exactly the same Ramsey composition, but I, I won't get into the devil in the detail. Notwithstanding, it's an opportunity to hear definitely the same instrument, but more than 80 years apart. FM and online at oldhamcommunityradio.com This is Community Keyboards with Ian Wollstoneholm.
Well, Chris, I wonder what Harold Ramsey would have made of all uh, our modern recording technology. Um, it's uh, difficult to say, isn't it? In um, in more normal times, the Wurlitzers used regularly in concerts and film shows and, uh, well, dances, special events, practically everything, really. But obviously, with the museum being in darkness, thanks to the uh, the pandemic, you decided, didn't you, to reach out to a, a global audience via the live streaming shows on uh, on YouTube. I know that many organists, particularly electronic and keyboard players, have been doing this sort of thing now via social media. Um, some may be better than others, I'll leave it at that. But you wanted to produce something a little bit more special, didn't you? What challenges did you come across when you were trying to um, get these mini-concerts to air? In fact, I think you were the guinea pig, weren't you? Well, yes, Ian, I was the guinea pig, yes. Um, <laughs> and it, that was indeed a, a bit of an ordeal, which I'll, t- I'll come to in, a, in just a second. But when I took over as interim chairman, and obviously now permanent chairman, I put together a recovery strategy. And one part of that was something called digital by default, which was the desire to put a museum in a position where we could engage with our existing audiences and new audiences or potential new audiences uh-huh. using digital technology. Because like it or not, love or hate technology, it is here. It's here to stay. It's not going to go away. And it will only become an increasingly significant part of all our lives. And so you might as well embrace it rather than fight it. Mm-hmm. And so this digital by default stream of our overall business strategy has become something quite significant we're working to and out of that was born the idea of doing some live streaming yes and of course the main challenge to start off with was i think said yes this is a good idea potentially a good idea because of the benefits it could bring to the museum we need the technology to do it and then actually get it to work make it all possible and get it all to work and that's where i have as chairman and director of music, I've been incredibly lucky to have two of my uh, co-directors, Simon Hill and Steve Barrett-White, who between them are experienced in lighting, vision, sound, and all the, the, the clever stuff that's associated with internet-based technology Sure. to make this all possible. And they've worked phenomenally hard mm. to put this together. And when I we, we did um, a little short just to, as a proof of concept, which was um, a little tribute to Vera, Dame Vera Lynn. Mm, mm. Because, of course, Vera Lynn had sung with the organ uh, during the dark days of World War II. Yes. I love you. It's a sin to tell a tried that as an a just to make sure the technology would would actually work and then when we'd sort of done that proof of concept then it was the next logical step to say okay well now we need to stream a live concert who should we get to do it and all eyes swiveled (laughs) as one in my direction Uh, you got the short straw didn't you yeah 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 yeah, get on with it um and yeah it was i could i remember and they'd, the um, Simon Hill, the technical director, had set up a, a little gadget on the console, which would say, you know, you kind of when this light flashes red, it's um, get ready, and when it, this one flashes blue, it's go. Oh, I thought that's a good one. I, I like blue flashing lights. That's fine. Um, 
You need, and, you need to explain just that in a very succinct way why you like the blue and white flashing light. Well, yeah, in, in my <laughs> professional working life, I'm a police officer, uh, I'm a response officer, and, and I spend my time between response and roads policing, or some of you would know as a traffic cop. Right. Um, so, yeah, blue flashing lights appeal to me. And I can remember looking at this red light flashing and then the blue light flashing and my mouth going really dry <sighs> and then coming up playing. And it was really, really strange that you reached the end of the first piece with you know the big flourish and big finish and nothing, absolute silence. No response at all. No, no, no applause, no audience. And no idea whether anybody's listening to you, watching you at all. Uh, Are you talking to yourself? Yeah. But um, clearly we weren't. And, uh, you know, that first experience proved that it was a viable concept Yes. and that we're now set on that course. And it's something we want to build on. And as you say, you, you, you've expanded and done one or two more. I know there's, there's quite a few in the well, pipeline as well. Yes, which, uh, we've done, we obviously done Richard. Richard Hill mm. has done an absolutely stunning concert for us. Um, we have others now booked up to the, to the end of the year. But we've also done some shorts around, as you mentioned, our Grotter in Steinweg uh, Grand Piano. Mm. We've done a little one about behind the scenes with the Wurlitzer. And I tried to cover off on, in that a lot of questions that people had, had very kindly written in um, when they were watching the program that I did about how does it work and what have you and what's this thing called second touch mm. uh, and so forth. So we, we did that and we have another one that is just coming up, which is about our role player, which is hitched up to the world itself. And we have none other than Jesse Crawford playing trees wow. on our own world itself. So <laughs> that's, that's to come. Incredible. So keep an eye out for that. Incredible. This is something almost, we were, we were talking briefly off air, weren't we, Chris, uh, earlier about the fact that in some respects this is a bit of a watershed moment because for many enthusiasts involved in the organ world, we, we, we tend to procrastinate and, and worry a little bit too much about what other people will think or will they accept a new concept or a new idea and this sort of thing. Um, and sometimes we don't give people the credit where credit is due. And this new technology that you're embracing the video, the sound quality, providing it's there and providing it's acceptable. Um, people will will utilise it at their end. They'll hook it up to their TV, big screen TV or whatever, you know, send it through their multi-channel sound system at home. I, I wonder if audiences will ever be the same again in well insofar as wanting to or even being willing to return to the auditoriums to attend live theatre organ concert events. What what do you think about that, Chris? Well, we, we see streaming as another channel in terms of our audience development and not a replacement right. for our existing audiences. Mm. And our view is that our traditional audiences who've supported us for many, many years will return, yes. perhaps slowly, and I think it will be slowly, we see them coming back, and certainly the the feedback and contact we've we've had from from people suggests that they are, they are looking forward to the museum opening and then be able to come back and see us again. And I think, particularly in terms of theatre organs, there's nothing that really quite compares. No matter how good your sound system at home is or whatever, of actually sitting there in the auditorium. Mm and experiencing those electric moments mm. before the organ starts playing and comes up and you feel that wall of air move yes, exactly. as the pipes start speaking. Yeah, um, sure. I think also, you know, one of the wonderful things about going to a concert is, of course, you get a chance to you know, rub shoulders with other people. Yes, of course. So, you know, a social event, a, yes. A, absolutely, yep. you know, how you're enjoying it. Oh, I like the way he played this or that or whatever, um, which is not so easy to do. He's not saying you can't do it, uh, perhaps, as um, when you're using technologies as it is when you're actually standing there having a cup of tea with someone. Sure, sure. So our view is, uh, as, uh, as the board of directors of the museum is that, yes, we hope we will see a return to our traditional activities, but people will still want to come back. But streaming does offer a significant opportunity in terms of audience development because you know, people we, we had people join us from australia and new zealand and japan would you believe mm. um and the chances of people coming to japan from japan <laughs> on a fairly regular basis to the musical museum in kew bridge in london are fairly slim uh, well maybe so yeah <laughs> but if we can embrace audiences like that yeah. and keep our numbers up 
then you know it's got to be um that has to be a serious way forward for the museum it's, alongside that traditional audience as well it's appealing to everybody isn't it giving everybody a fair crack of the whip as you might say yeah I th- yeah. We, yeah that's our that's that's our feeling chris while i've got you here um and just going back to the young theater organist of the year contest and the uh, the interest of young players in the theater organ particularly how how secure do you feel, uh, I guess, as a custodian of what is a superb world? It's there. There's no question about that. What's the future of attracting new young players to ensure that, uh, well, for want of a better expression, the world it's there won't itself become a, a museum piece? Well, and that uh, absolutely because it's no good having a musical instrument like the world mm. and it sits there in silence and you can look at it or just hear a recording of it. Mm. It's only special when you hear it. Yes. And so we we do usually try and use the word as often as we can without boring everybody rigid. You know, it's it is the musical museum, not the Wurlitzer Museum. Yes. So we have other other exhibits. Yeah. But the Wurlitzer is arguably the jewel in the crown, as it were. Mm-hmm. And we are interested certainly in developing and helping other young organists to to come along. And it's that, again, that's a piece of work that we're doing, thinking how can we do that in the most constructive way possible, accepting that, you know, the Wurlitzer or the theatre organ is not a mainstream instrument mm. in these times, but we have to do as custodians of the organ and as all the other instruments as well, for that matter, yeah. whatever we can to support the ongoing musical life of the organ. And that obviously has to include developing and encouraging new young players. Mm. When I think back to when I first started, you couldn't get near a theatre organ. No, no. And no. Um, even now, unless you're a well-known name, <laughs> then you, you can't get anywhere near. So, which is a shame, but mm. that's their choice, and one has to respect that. But yeah, we do want to, we do want to see young talent coming along. And as I say, it's that's a piece of work that we're engaged on at the moment as to how we can actually do that and tie it in with our business model. And you heard Chris play George Gershwin's Strike Up the Band and an extract from the 1936 recording of Dame Vera Lynn with Sidney Torch at the Wurlitzer and It's a Sin to Tell a Lie. We'll be back at the museum after this short break. You're listening to Community Keyboards with Ian Wollstoneholm on Oldham Community Radio 99.7 FM. And welcome back to Community Keyboards, where this time I'm talking with musical director and organist at the London Musical Museum, Chris Barber. Well, here's one of Chris's predecessors when the Wurlitzer was in its ABC cinema home. Joseph Seal was appointed musical director for the ABC circuit in 1951 and made many recordings and broadcasts on the regal Wurlitzer. Well, here's Joe with a delightful arrangement of Moonglow.
well, Chris, you've you've mentioned all these strands that um, that you're going to put in place and and the the work in progress, obviously, at the the museum. It, it seems to me to be a sound future, as you might say. You've got. Um, other things going on, of course, you've got your Patreon page, haven't you? And there's a, mm. there's, a, there's a new book that you've published as well. Goodness me, it's all go there, isn't it? That's right. But I mean, these are, as you mentioned, very uncertain times for any third sector organisation, much less mainstream business. And when I took over as initially as interim chairman, and obviously now as permanent, I, as I alluded to earlier on, I put in place a recovery strategy to turn the fortunes of the museum around. And we've had to revisit that strategy in the light of COVID. Mm. And so key things that we've been up to is, as you mentioned, we produced a new book on the world, which will be available through our website. We have a now have a Patreon page established. But we've had to move to a business model to develop sustainable income streams and run the museum as a business now, as opposed to perhaps how it's been run uh, in the past, which has been a bit of a difficult thing for some people to come to terms with, um, particularly you know, for the staff and volunteers who've been there a long time and done a, you know, a fabulous, steady, really good job. Yes. But we're now asking them to work in a different way mm. and think more commercially mm. because, you know, without a sustainable income stream, there's no museum. No. no. So the museum remains at the heart of why, you know, what we do and why we exist. But it's now got to be protected by a sound commercial uh, business which generates income. Yes. And so... We now have a lot of our efforts are now focused very much around business development. Yes. I've completed a refresh of the board of directors, which we're nearly there with. A little bit more work to do, so I'm still looking for someone with sales and marketing experience, particularly around things like digital media, but mm-hmm. also fundraising. Yes. Uh, and as I said, we've got this amazing band of volunteers who perform the myriad of tasks mm-hmm. that are needed to keep the museum operating. And on the whole, they're hugely supportive of the new direction that we're following because they want to see the museum survive. So, you know, we're all quietly optimistic uh, and planning for the future and that we will be around for a long time yet for people to come along and, to be honest, enjoy the magic of what is the musical museum. And that's it. You've put the, 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 the finger on it there, Chris. It is. It's a magical place. It certainly is a jewel in the crown in, in the capital, definitely. It's been lovely to chat with you today on our lockdown listen line as you might say um, we'll uh, we'll get back down to london one of these fine days and uh, in the meantime we can keep up to date with things online as well and um, there'll be uh, lots more opportunities to see the music museum at the uh, at the forefront of, of things in our uh, popular organ world chris thanks ever so much for being a guest on community keyboards it's been lovely to chat and um keep well keep busy and um, above all keep uh, keep the music alive ian thank you very much for having me with you today it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to be able to share some information with you about the musical museum and i do hope we'll see you and as many of your listeners feel able to make the journey down to london at some point in the future do come and see us and it'd be lovely to say hello thanks so much for having me
Chris Barber and Irving Berlin's There's No Business Like Show Business. And a reminder, for more information about what's on, the online sales shop and links to web streams, do visit www.musicalmuseum.co.uk. Now, you heard Chris mention the legendary Mellotron, an example of which is on show at the museum. Well, I came across this fascinating snippet on YouTube recently from a 1965 British Pathé newsreel, and it really is one of those, well, I never knew that moments. And following on, a chance to hear a short extract from the beautiful Grotrian Steinweg self-playing piano exhibit. Enjoy the music for a minute before we let personality Eric Robinson explain. I suppose you thought you were listening to a long playing record just then. Well, you weren't. You were listening to a new instrument that David Nixon and I have helped develop in this country. It makes the actual sounds of the orchestra. So come over and meet my son-in-law with you and the Metatron. David, tell me, every time I come to your house, you're always playing this instrument. Well, I'm a frustrated musician, Eric. I need this, you see. I can, I've never been able to play the piano. Sorry for you, you've got an orchestra. Well, explain how it works, please. Well, actually, it's fairly straightforward. It's a musical computer, and as you know, Eric, the right hand is lead instruments with a choice of 18 different ones, and the left hand is rhythms in this half and backgrounds in this half, and it's all been fed onto hundreds of tape tracks. All right, well, I suggest that uh, you play a little simple piece. What about it? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> my party piece. <laughs> Bye-bye blues with two fingers all and right. nothing up my sleeve. in the left hand and let's try a, a trombone background. Well, that's fine David for the quick steps but what about some of the other rhythms? Here's a French accordion with a Viennese waltz. Thank you. Well, David isn't a musician, as you know, but I have a professional pianist here who can really show you what the Mellotron can do. Jeff Unwin. one of my personal favourites from the Musical Museum's library of almost 20,000 music rolls. It's a roll produced by Ampico that has been in our collection for over 40 years, a beautiful and popular piece composed by Walter Gross called Tenderly. Rotrian Steinweg reproducing piano is a wonderful example of one of the most sophisticated ways in which you could hear popular music during the early 1900s without playing an instrument yourself. Reproducing original music performances through purely mechanical means, without speakers or amplifiers. 
There are many other varieties of reproducing and self-playing instruments in our collection, and we'll explore another of these in our next video in this series, so please do subscribe to our channel to see more. For now, from the Musical Museum in London, if you have been, thank you for watching. And yes, you heard right. TV magician David Nixon was heavily involved with the development and promotion of the Mellotron, which even found its way into the hands of Princess Margaret. And on that royal note, it's time to bid a fond farewell for now. Don't forget you can listen again to anything you might have missed by going to the oldhamcommunityradio.com player or catch up via anchor.fm forward stroke community keyboards on most of the major podcast platforms. If you'd like to get in touch, then do drop an email to communitykeyboards at gmail.com or a note to P.O. Box 997 Oldham OL1 9EB. And to keep up to date with news and information in between shows, head over to our Facebook page or the programme's website address, which is communitykeyboards.simplesite.com. For the moment, this is Ian Wilson home saying thanks very much for listening. Take care, all the best, and bye-bye.